Father, we just thank you for this night, Lord. Um, thank you for this time just to gather and worship and just praise your name. Um, Lord, I pray that we can be in obedience to you, Lord, um, living out our life faithfully for you, Lord. Um, and I pray that we just open our hearts tonight as we engage in worship um, and just in community. We give this all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You all can have a seat. My name is Elise, and I'm here on the college team. Um, we are so glad y'all are here tonight and braved out the rain and the cold. Um, how many of y'all are seniors in this room? Raise hands. Yeah, a little woo. Y'all are, are almost done. Two months out. Seniors? Okay, yes. So probably a lot of y'all are thinking, all right, what's next? Maybe y'all have jobs lined up or internships, grad school. But I know for a lot of you, you're probably thinking, all right, what's next for me in the church? And so we are excited to announce that on Tuesday, April 20th, from 7 p.m. to 8.30, we're going to have a young adult worship night. All right, excited, yes. Um, so we are gonna have anybody from post-grad into 20s um, gather for just a night of worship. We know that season can be a really hard and volatile time, and especially coming out of a year like 2020 into 2021. And so we are excited for this, and we're gonna have more information, so you can be sure to follow our Fellowship Fateville account if you're a senior, and we hope to see you all there. Um, if you are not a senior or if you are a senior, we have a couple other options for y'all that we'd love to help y'all get engaged. Um, girls, uh, have any of y'all heard about If Gathering before? Yes? Okay. So we are excited to announce, this has been a whole thing coming together, but on Saturday, April 17th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., we are going to be restreaming the If Gathering for 2021 here and specifically for college girls. Um, we're going to have live worship breakouts. We're going to stream the speakers in. Um, we'll have lunch, snacks, and some other really fun things that are to be coming. So the cost is 20 bucks for a full day. Um, Y'all, the content is incredible. Um, you'll hear from speakers like Francis Chan. Sadie Robertson, uh, Christine Kane. I left so encouraged after our watch this last weekend. So we will have registration going live, hopefully tomorrow. So if you check back on our Fellowship College account, you can sign up, bring your friends. And this is a great event if you don't have friends that are going to Fellowship College. It's an easy way to bring them in to find community. So be sure to sign up for that. Second, 412 Institute, um, we are live, and so you can scan that QR code to get registered. Um, if you haven't heard about 412 Institute, it is an eight-week summer discipleship program um, that's going through teaching and community, and this summer we're walking through the Book of Acts, so it's going to be an awesome summer. It kicks off June 1st through July 29th, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 6.30 to 8.30, and that is 50 bucks, which covers t-shirts, materials, meals on Thursday nights. Um, Y'all, this program is incredible. Incredible. If you're in uh, Fayetteville this summer, uh, sign up for it. If you are not um, and you don't know what you're doing, stay in Fayetteville and sign up because I promise it'll be worth it. So um, you can uh, scan that QR code or you can also visit the link in bio on Instagram to get that link. And then lastly, okay, this is a big one. Um, there's this event that I've heard called March Madness that's happening. So they tell me I'm not a sports person. You can see the slide. I really put a lot of uh, effort into sports time. So you can scan that QR code. Um, apparently the guys and the ladies, no discrimination here, are doing a March Madness bracket. Winner to receive $100 in Fayetteville gift cards, $50 Chick-fil-A, $50 Burton's. And so maybe I will study up on basketball just for the gift cards. Um, but scan the QR code if you are interested in doing that. So uh, now stand up, talk to your neighbor, tell them if you're going to do the March Madness bracket. If you're a girl, invite your neighbor to If Gathering. All right.
So I want, I want to go on record as saying, if you're doing the, the March Madness thing, and you don't have the hogs going all the way, just lose my number. I would die for Moses Moody, and I hope he knows that. He's my best friend. I haven't met him. I will one day. Um, if you guys would, find your way back to your seats. Um, that was phrased like a joke, but it wasn't at all. I actually do lose my number if you don't have the hogs going all the way. Um, I'm not allowed to say that if I'm on the stage leading worship. It's not a very nice thing to say. Um, so I apologize. I'll repent later. Um, Psalm, I'm just, wow, I'm killing it. Woo, go Ty, he's killing it. Everyone clap for the worst worship leader of all time. Absolute blasphemy coming out of the stage right now. You can trust me because I'm about to teach you the word of God. Psalm 46, let's go to somebody smarter than me, obviously. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in our time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear that the earth gives way and the mountains fall, mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar, the foam mountains quake with their surging. Psalm 46. There's a, a little small subscript word, if you look at this in your Bibles, and it's the word selah. Can you guys say that? Selah. That sounds perfect. I don't know Hebrew, but that's perfect. Um, as best we can guess, Selah is a musical term, and it's kind of like a, a lyrical pause, if you will. Have you ever been in a church service and all the worship leaders up here are doing their super emotional thing with their eyes closed and I'm swaying back and forth and there aren't any lyrics on the screen? You're like, what do I do? I'm so nervous. Like, put my hands up. Do I, like, what do I do? You know, we say love. We worship through song without saying any words. So that's what we're going to do. There's going to be some scripture on the screen and I encourage you. A few weeks ago, Garland was teaching and he said, posture we can get in is kneeling when we worship and just act in uh, submission and reverence to him. We can put our hands out, we can close our eyes, we can sit down, we can read the Bible. Um, I encourage you, we're just going to take a moment and we're just going to play. Um, and I want you guys to use this time to say love, to worship. So if you'd like, there's going to be some scripture on the screen that's going to rotate through. Um, but use this time.
Righteous will answer him, 
Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, trustly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then you will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching. We thank you for worship. Thank you for a time where we can reflect and remember you. So Father, as Caleb comes up and teaches, would it be your words, not his? Would you bless him and teach? Bless him to show us who you are. We love you. Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Hey, my name is uh, Caleb Freeman. My wife and I have three kids. We've lived in Northwest Arkansas for about six years. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna open up with some transparency for you. Every year that I live in Arkansas, I realize just a little more deeply that I, I don't fit in here. I don't belong. I'll be honest, I'm originally from Branson, Missouri, and what I'm realizing, because the whole time I grew up, I was taught everybody in Arkansas is a bunch of hicks and a bunch of hillbillies, and the longer I'm here, the more I'm realizing I was the hick in the hillbilly. People from Branson, man, we just stand out. Literally, until we moved here, I thought Applebee's was a nice restaurant, I thought half-price apps was, was where it was at. Then I showed up to Tuscan Trotter one day, and I was like, sweet mercy, this is grace. I know how to live now. I mean, we Branson people, and I'll throw everybody from Missouri in there. We just stick out. We're pretty identifiable. And, and honestly, you've seen us around. Anytime you go to the Walmart, and, and you walk in and and pause for a second, I just said the Walmart. Anybody from Missouri, that's what they actually call it. They just say the Walmart. So when you walk into the Walmart and you see that dude there and he's got moccasins on and his house slippers, and you're like, well, that's weird, it's not really your house, but you could put real shoes on, I'm not judging, it's okay. And then you begin to gander and gaze up the rest of his body and he's wearing a vest, nothing underneath it. I'm just talking like Columbia, quarter zip down, nothing underneath. I guarantee you I went to high school with that bro. I guarantee he's from Branson. And the lady at midnight, she still got curlers in her hair. I guarantee you, my grandma knows her. She grew up down the road from my grandma in Branson, Missouri. All the guys with mullets. And I know it's kind of cool now. There's some of you who are like, yeah, I got mullets. I like sports. Do the bracket, that stuff. I'm not talking that kind of mullet. All right, I'm talking about the mullet that actually gets ordained for family pictures. The grandpa brings out the holy water. They're sprinkling it on it. And this is what makes the family pictures righteous. All those kinds of mullets, yeah, they're from Missouri. Because we stick out. We're easily identified. And the only other group that I know is that easily identified is all you Highland Park people. We know where you're at, all right? You, you don't have to keep bragging about it. It's loud enough. We get it, okay? You're identified by what you do. You've made that clear. But I think that's true for everybody. You're identified by what you do. And if we were to ask non-believers, hey, how would, you, how would you identify a Christian? I think they'd get some, you'd get some answers like this. Oh, those are the people who are hateful. Those are the people who are bigots. Those are the people who, who are illogical. They're just old school. They don't understand. Oh, Christians are the people who stand on the edge of, of Dixon yelling, hey, you're going to hell. I think that's how non-believers a lot of times would identify believers and what they think they're doing. What's interesting, though, is typically as I talk to believers, I did a little case study a few weeks ago, and I started asking people, hey, you're, you're a follower of Christ. What do, you think, what do you think is an identifying factor about you for non-believers? 
what I, what I found is most people said it's not what they do. They actually think it's what they refrain from doing. A lot of believers would say, hey, other people know that I follow Christ because, I, you know, I don't get drunk. Oh, you know, all the guys in the sorority house, they know I'm a Christian because I don't curse that much. I try not to have sex before, I'm, before marriage. And we act as if refraining or abstaining from something is the sole identifying factor in our godly character. That's just not the case. You see, I do think we ought to be identified by our godly character. It's, it's one of our goals as believers that people would look at us, they would know who we are by the way we interact with people. And the way we interact with people would actually reflect Christ, who is God. But there's two parts to godly character that we gotta understand. Two components that make up true Christ-like character. You can see it in Romans 12. The first is a character of abstinence. It says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. I think a big part of people being able to identify us as believers is that we have a character that abstains from worldly things. We refrain from the practices and the pattern of this world. But that's only half the, half the coin. The other side would be that we have to have a character of engagement. It says that we don't just not conform to the pattern of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the way that we're transformed is by engaging in spiritual things. You see, we refrain from worldly practices. We engage in the spiritual practices. We refrain and abstain from worldly pleasures, and we engage, engage in the holy things, the ways of God. And that's what makes up our godly character. The problem is, we the church, man, we've forgotten about the engagement. We've done the easy thing. We've taught the don'ts. Don't look, don't lust, you know, don't think. We, we actually, we try and disciple people, not necessarily into godliness, but just away from worldliness. And that is a paradox. We've got to bring back the engagement. We've got to stop acting as if godly character is only refraining from the pleasures of this world. Because Jesus is really clear that true believers are identified by the way in which they engage with those around them, specifically those who are in need. And that's, what, that's the parable we're in, the parable of the sheep and the goats. If you're from Branson, you say the sheeps and the goats. I was really mad when Garland gave me this one because this isn't an easy parable, all right? This isn't a parable I'm reading to my daughter every evening before she goes to bed. Jesus comes swinging a little bit. What he's doing is he's talking to the people about the coming age. And he begins to tell this parable and he says, hey, when I come back, when the son of man comes and sits on the throne, the people will be gathered before me, the nations will, and I will begin to separate them. And as he is telling this parable, he explains how he separates the citizens of the kingdom of God, believers, from non-believers. Let's go ahead and take a look. It starts in Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. I wanna pause there for a second because we, we gotta get this in our mind. You see, there's a lot of us that want our Christian faith just to be a set of morals. We just want it to be some guiding principles that we can use to base our votes off of. We don't really want there to be an actual deity, an actual sovereign God that took on flesh. But we gotta remember Hey, this Christian faith, as weird as it may sound, but as real as it is, it's about a, the loving God who took on flesh, came and lived with us, died for us, rose for us, and will come back for us and redeem this place. Escapism isn't Christianity. The goal isn't to get out of here. It's actually to work hand in hand with the Holy Spirit as Jesus redeems what we have messed up. And Jesus starts this parable off with that truth. He says, when the Son of Man comes, hey, when I come back, I will sit on the glorious throne. Read Philippians 2. And when Jesus comes back and he's sitting on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the people, one from another, just as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. In this story, Jesus describes the people before him and him putting some on his right, some on his left. 
He calls the sheep the ones on his right, the righteous, and the goats the one on his left. He begins to explain how he had separated them, or the separation continues. And Jesus, the king, says to the sheep on his right, he goes, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus is taking the sheep, the righteous, he's putting them on his right and he says, this is why you're here. And the sheep look at him and they say, wait, 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 wait. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty, give you something to drink? We didn't see you as a stranger or needing clothes. We, we didn't see you sick or in prison and we didn't come visit you. And Jesus in this answer explains the means by which he separates. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus gives the explanation for his separating. The explanation of his identifying is really simple and really convicting. Those who engage with the people who need help those who engage with the marginalized, those who engage with the oppressed, those who engage with those who are needy, that's who Jesus says are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's so convicting and it's so simple. Jesus says that true believers don't just abstain, they also engage. True believers they have true actions because real faith leads to a real life of engagement. If you're wondering, if you're, if you're sitting in here and you're like, man, what does it mean? What's it mean to be a Christian? How, how do I do this Christ-following thing? Let this be the answer. Let this be it. To follow Christ is to engage with the least of these as if you're engaging with the Son of Man. If you're sitting in here and you're like, well, I'm kind of interested in this Christian thing, but what's the bare minimum? Like, I just want to get as close to the line, but I'm not sure I want to jump over it. Then please let these words correct that thinking. Because Jesus never says Christianity is all about doing the bare minimum. No, no, no. He says Christianity, following after me, is about caring for the least of these. True believers are identified by their true engagement with those who need it. Jesus continues to separate. He says to those on the left, hey, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. And just like the sheep looked at Jesus, they go, King, when do, when do, Lord, when do we see you hungry? So too do the goats. And they reply to the king and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger, needing clothes, sick, in prison? When did we not help you? And he gives his means, the explanation for his separating, his explanation for identifying non-kingdom citizens. And he says, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. I mean, that's potent. That's real. And that's hard. Because when I read this parable, the people I identify with are the goats. I mean, they're looking at the king going, wait, we didn't see you. If we had, we would have helped. If I knew you needed clothes, I would have given you some. Man, I had some food. I would have helped out. And in all reality, I do the exact same thing. I just change the language. Oh, I totally would have helped that person. They just weren't, they weren't in my ministry. Man, I would have given money, but there's so many people on the corner of so many streets. I can't do it all. And besides, if I had given them money, then I don't know what they would have done with it. Who knows how they would have actually used the $5 that I would have given them. At least the goats say, hey, we, we didn't even see you. I pretend that it's strategy that's keeping me from engaging. 
because I go, oh, if I give to them, then maybe they'll be dependent on me. Or, oh, I'm not, I'm not gonna aid here because that's the government's job. I have been delusioned into thinking that strategy is what prohibits me from engaging when in reality it's fear and uncertainty. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, here's the reality. If, if you're a believer in here and you're like, man, well, I feel like I gotta do more. I feel like I'm not doing enough. I got two thoughts for you. First, hey, that might be real conviction. Don't run from that. Lean into the sweet life of following after the Lord where he sanctifies you. There's nothing better. But lean into the whisperings of the spirit that might be saying to you, yeah, hey, following after me does mean you pick up your cross, you deny yourself. Following after me means you have the mindset I do, which is I didn't consider equality with God something to be used to my own advantage. In fact, I used my Godhood, my divinity, for the benefit of others by humbling myself and becoming obedient, even obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And Jesus might be convicting you. Lean into it. I promise it's worth it. But on the other side, and I don't think Jesus is saying that you gotta do more to be saved at all. I actually think when we understand what's going on here, it's a breath of fresh air because God takes all the pressure off of us. We get, we get so worried, so caught up in how we serve, how we engage, that we almost talk ourselves out of it. We, we treat helping others like we treat stocks. We gotta buy the right one to make sure we get the right kickback. We gotta do it the wise way, the right way. And all along, that thinking just prohibits us from actually doing what the Lord has put right in front of us, to engage. You see, we worry about making sure that we get a return on investment when we engage with somebody, and that worrying just stops us. But the reality, grace isn't about getting something back. The beauty of grace is that you offer it, and it can't be played. It doesn't get diminished. It doesn't get beaten up. It is what it is because you offer it. My wife and I, we lived in Ecuador for a little bit. And I think every day I spent in Ecuador, the Lord just grew me up day after day. He was so patient, working through my arrogance. So I would walk out my door every single day. I'd take a left, I'd take another left. And right there, the same lady would be begging for money. And for months, I would walk by her with my North American mind thinking, I, you know, I, I'm not gonna give her some money. Who knows what she'll do with that? If I just give her money, then... She's gonna still be here and she's just gonna get used to that. What she needs is a job, not me. I, you know, I, I, if her kids are here, sure, I'll buy them some apples. I'll get some, I'll get some water. There's a fruit stand right over there. And then I realized one day, the Lord stopped me. That lady looked right into my eyes and I actually saw the human. I saw who she was. And the Lord reminded me, Caleb, you've been more concerned with the return on your money more worried about what you think is right for her to do with that than you have been worried about her and her well-being. Caleb, you have let fear and insecurities guide you rather than me leading you to a point where you can engage. I don't ask you to know every step. I ask you to engage. See, the beauty of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is that we just get to offer grace. That's what grace is. You give it to somebody, no matter what it is, whether it's money encouragement, time together, your presence, an encouraging note, a helping hand. Grace is beautiful because of what it is and how it's given, not because of how it's received. It can't be played. The grace of Jesus on the cross is not diminished because we might misuse it, abuse it, or turn from it. No, I actually think it makes it more significant. Just because some of us don't fully respect the grace of Christ it doesn't make it any less valuable. I think it only amplifies how amazing it is that Jesus gives us himself whether or not we receive it. And that's the beauty of what Christ welcomes us into, to offer engagement and care and let him do the heavy lifting. Grace can't be played. We don't have to worry about making it all perfect because God gets to do that. We don't have to worry about knowing every step. God already does. 
we just get to concern ourselves with the people who are in front of us. And we get to engage knowing that the Lord works in the smallest acts possible. I love this line. If you're memorizing scripture, memorize this. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And God takes this and he rearranges it in such a way that we can begin to see whatever we do, the Lord actually uses it. When we, when we feed an orphan, it's like Jesus is saying, you are feeding me, the king. When you help someone find their way to class, it's like you're escorting the king. You see, we gotta understand this teaching in light of all of Jesus' teachings, especially the parable of the mustard seed, because Jesus takes the smallest things, the mustard seed, and he grows it into something that brings rest for all of the birds. And I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus takes our smallest acts of grace, our smallest acts of engagement, and he grows them into incredible stories of redemption and healing. I get to work with some students and, and some incredible leaders. And I see this principle play out where, where these faithful men that I know engage with what's right in front of them. And the grace that they offer, the Lord takes, uses, and molds into a beautiful story. I got a buddy named Andrew. He leads one of our cell groups and he, he's been working with a young man who continues to struggle with self-harm. And each day that Andrew sends a text, it's a little bit of grace expended to him. Each day that Andrew takes him to Brahms to buy ice cream, each day that Andrew walks around the park with him, each day that Andrew actually says, hey, I'm thinking about you. That is a day that the Lord begins to grow a story of healing and redemption into that young man. I got a buddy named Blake who is unbelievably faithful. The other day he's sitting at home and as he's, it's a Saturday morning, he rolls out into his living room, sits down into his uh, recliner. That's how you know you're from Springdale. You sit in a recliner. Uh, and as he's sitting in the recliner, finally about to turn on the TV and relax, he gets a knock on the door. He's like, okay, well, this wasn't how I planned the day. He gets up, and a Mormon dude walks in and starts talking to him. And in the back of his mind, Blake is thinking, man, I just want to sit and watch some TV. I want to have this conversation. But he also is going, hey, I'm going to engage. I'm going to be kind. This is a chance to show grace. And so he does. They have their conversation. They go their separate ways. Blake runs back into his living room, sits down, happy. The world is right, about to watch some college football, and he gets another knock on the door. He's going, all right, is this how my Saturday's gonna go? And so he gets up, and as he opens the door, it's actually a vacuum cleaner salesman. And I'm going, what? Is that still a thing? We still do vacuum cleaner salesmen? Like, we're in the 21st century. We're still walking door to door, selling those things. I thought everybody did the Roomba stuff. But apparently, people are still selling vacuums. And so this dude opens the door. Blake opens the door. He sees the guy, and the first thing's out of his mouth. Hey, I don't make any money for selling. I make money for doing the pitch. Can I just give you it? And so Blake opens. He's like, sure, come on in. Dude starts vacuuming his floors, cleaning it up. And as he's giving the pitch, finishing it, he looks over. And this salesman goes, hey, is that a PlayStation? And Blake is like, well, it says PlayStation on it. Yeah, yeah, it's a PlayStation. And the guy's like, you got Madden? And Blake's thinking, is the Pope Catholic? It's a PS4, of course I got Madden. And so they kind of have this stare down at each other. And, and, and Blake breaks the silence. He's like, hey, you wanna play? And the guy goes, yeah. And they sit down and they start playing Madden. Next thing they know, the boss of the vacuum cleaner, I'm still not sure this is real. The boss of the vacuum cleaner salesman's like, hey, dude, where are you? And that guy's like, oh, uh, <laughs> I'm a few streets down. I'm actually playing Madden with a dude right now. And you can hear the boss just going nuts. And the guy's like, well, it, I, I don't know. This, this guy's a Jesus dude. And he let me into his house and he says, you can come. And so the boss shows up 10 minutes later. Blake opens the door. He lets him in. He gives him his recliner. They sit down. They play Madden, and the day that was reserved for college football became a day to engage with the shepherd put before him. And I know it's oversimplistic. I know it's way too easy, but I promise you more ministry took place in that moment because Jesus is faithful to grow the mustard seed-sized acts of grace into amazing things. 
My mother-in-law was a pair at an elementary school for years. And there was a little boy there that I knew pretty well. Um, he had special needs and braces on his legs. And she loved this boy so well. Came from a lower income family and he would show up to school often with lice in his hair. And so every time my mother-in-law saw that, she would escort him quietly to the nurse. They would get the shampoo, the special comb. She would show him how to do it. She'd write a note to the parents explaining how to you know, help make sure the lice don't come back to kill him, get rid of him. But she knew what would happen. The family would just shave the boy's head bald. And he would walk into school the next day, every time this happened, with his head down, knowing that his bald head only proved that he had had lice and ashamed of the way that he looked. And over time, my mother-in-law learned this. And every day that she sent him home with the shampoo, the next day she would get there early, waiting at the door for this boy. And she would look him in the eyes and she would say, hey, buddy, I love your haircut. You look handsome today. And he would begin to raise his eyes and he would look at her and he'd say, thank you, Miss Christie. There's more grace in my mother-in-law's words than I have given to anybody. And I don't know where that young man is now, but I promise you what my mother-in-law offered to him in that engagement is something that the Lord will grow and use because that's what he calls us to do, to engage with those around us. True believers, they're not identified by what they, by what they abstain from alone. No, they're also identified by the way in which they engage with those who need it the most. You know, I think the most convicting part of this parable is actually probably the most overlooked. Jesus uses the term sheep and goats to describe the, the two groups of people. Why? I'll tell you why. You gotta be from Branson, Missouri to know why, and I am. And there's not a lot of difference between sheep and goats. They actually kind of look a lot alike, a little different. But two of the main things that separate them is what they intake and the way that they're guided. You see, a sheep eats what it is led to. That's it. Where the shepherd brings the sheep and what's in front of it, that's what it partakes. That's what it consumes. A goat, holy cow, they'll eat anything. I don't know how all goats don't have perforated stomachs. It's crazy. And there is actually a law in Fayetteville, I don't know if this is still true, but in Fayetteville for a while, you couldn't mow within a certain distance of creek beds. And so that stream that runs through Wilson Park, they weren't allowed to mow it, the city wasn't. And it would just, it would get crazy infested with poison ivy and these thorn bushes. And so the way that they would get rid of it is they'd just release a flock of goats in there. And those things would just run wild, gnawing on everything they saw. They eat it all down. A sheep eats what it's led to where the shepherd brings it, it partakes in what it's guided to. A goat eats whatever it wants. The other difference is that a sheep can learn to be led. It actually learns the voice of its shepherd and it can be guided. A goat walks wherever it wants. It just wanders around eating stuff. And as weird as that is, I do think there's intention because Jesus identifies true believers, the ones who engage with the least of these as, as sheep, the ones who partake in what their shepherd puts before them, take in what he brings to them and follow diligently after his voice. And the goats, the ones who don't engage with the least of these, he describes them as goats, the ones who consume whatever they want, whenever they want, following no guidance, but only meandering about after and in search of the heart's desire. Man, how would you identify yourself? A sheep or a goat? Maybe the better question is, how would the world identify you?
Father, let that be our earnest prayer, that we have decided to follow you. Jesus, a big part of following you is doing what you did. Jesus, when we were poor, you clothed us. When we were in need, you helped us. When we were strangers, you invited us in. When we were hungry, you fed us. When we were thirsty, you gave us living water. Father, would you give us the grace to do what Jesus did? that we can be identified as his followers because not of the things we don't do, but the things that we do, the way we love, the way we encourage, the way we help, the way we build others up. Father, would that be us? Would your church be a, a mirror reflecting you, dimly lit, but one that looks like you in the same way? Father, we thank you for our time of worship, time to grow in understanding that you are king, that you've got it all figured out. We belong to you. We love you. Would you bless us and keep us this week? Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. We love you. You're dismissed. See you next week.